March 14, 1975. This is Lester Smith reporting. Next news as it happens. Next scheduled news at 11 o'clock over WOR, Radio 710, the talk of New York. I just wonder, is there anybody out there keeping count? Gee, he must have more notches in his gun, I'll tell you. And, uh, what, there's a couple of other guys on TV that do a lot of popping away there. That guy that comes on immediately after Ken, there's a guy in a thing called the Manhunter or something like that. I don't think he's had a show yet where he hasn't killed two or three guys, usually with dynamite. That was a good one. Yeah, they threw dynamite at him. <laughs> oh, wow. Hey, listen, I'll give you a brass figure. Speaking of, uh, spectacular uh, uh, moments of savagery. What uh, what famous short story was about a guy who stood on the back of a boat and lit, he lit uh, sticks of dynamite on his cigar, and just like you'd like, uh, like uh, firecrackers, and he lit sticks of dynamite on his cigar and threw the sticks of dynamite at the natives that were pursuing him in canoes. What, uh, who wrote the story, and, and uh, what was... What, it's a famous short story. That <laughs> would make a great TV episode. <laughs> oh, wow. Would there be some picketing on that one? But uh, anyway, this guy, uh, just zap, he was bapping away like that. And uh, so that was one of the high boys. What, uh, you know, this... I remember I read this story. Was of, I was about 10, and it was in a collection of short stories, and I have never forgotten that story. If I remember rightly, the guy had red hair. I mean, the guy that uh, was the hero, quote, of the story. But he was, uh, you know, uh, you, I guess I guess your mind goes in a different directions if you're a knight type, really. 
Now, um, most of the kids that I knew at the time were, you know, were busily reading the Bobsy Twins. And there I was reading about this guy throwing stuff at the, <laughs> at the natives with the pot. <laughs> and, uh, well, you know, it's... it's uh, it, now, here's a question I have to ask you. Now, before we get started here tonight, I have a couple of philosophical questions here to raise before the class. Uh, there was a piece recently that came out in one of the papers here. It says, uh, it's been a long study. Now, this is nighttime, right, in your life. Now, I have been doing my thing, whatever my thing is, living, walking around, doing the whole bit at night, ever since, uh, well, just about ever since the time I got out of high school. It's just been that way. In fact, I never, when I was in college, I never took morning classes unless I was absolutely forced to do so by conditions over which I had no control, like uh, imminent failure. So, uh... I would, uh, you know, always take uh, classes in the afternoon because that was when my head started to work. Now, here's a study. It says night workers have more problems to contend with than just a revulsion to roast beef and mashed potatoes when their stomachs say that it's time for eggs and toast and coffee. A former Michigan State University researcher says late, late night. I, I, you know, I love these great research projects that go on in universities. Some guy gets $400,000 grant, you know, to discover that the stuff falls out of windows when you drop it. You know, <laughs> you know they do. They, they, they come up. He, he, after this long study, they have finally found out that people who work nights uh, have different problems to face than people who work days. They just, all they can do is come around here. Anybody tell them, right? Uh, and, and does it ever fit this crowd? Listen to this. First of all, they lack identification with their daytime counterparts. That is so true. And it's vice versa, I might add. That the that the daytime crowd around here figures that the you know this this whole damn station uh, uh, somehow mysteriously disappears like a pumpkin that uh, Cinderella's riding in the minute that the 512 gets into Grand Central then they take off of wherever that uh, cockamamie suburb is that they live you know <laughs> that's it it doesn't exist anymore they come back the next day and uh, they turn it on and they open up the windows and they're ready for business again and I said oh so much. Uh, it says here, one, they notice themselves having fewer dates. Well, now, that's quite true, fella. Now, that took a lot of research. When you're working that, you do. You know, you tend to... It says you, you attend fewer parties. That took three research assistants to discover that one. <laughs> and uh, it says also... Uh, I kind of like this one. And they, they find themselves drifting away from the everyday concerns and activities of their close friends. You better believe it. In fact... All of my close friends, they listen to the show here, and they say, what the hell is this all about? You know, what are you talking about? Because, you know, they keep they keep wondering about whether or not they're going to, uh, you know, their, their concerns are so, uh, let's put it this way, so earthbound. Have you noticed that the, the people at night tend to become more and more spiritual? Let's put it this way, hip. Uh, they tend to get hipper and hipper. Uh, and a lot of it has to do with uh, sleeping, for example. Because you know that, uh, that when you sleep, uh, during the day, says, sleeping during the day becomes a contest between the sleepy and all the enemies out to get him or her. <laughs> That's quite true, I'll tell you. Uh, this is another research. It says, problems with sleeping become a regular part of conversations with fellow night workers, much like discussing the weather. I've seen that happen. I, you see, here, you know, the, the, the real night types. Now, I, I remember when I was working... Uh, uh, one of the first jobs I ever got uh, was uh, one summer uh, I was working for a steel mill. Now, a lot of you people out there that work in New York, you don't know about night shifts. You don't know about shift work. 
you, t- you keep thinking that there's two separate groups. There's a day shift and there's a night shift, and the night shift are guys that clean up the halls. No way. Uh, <laughs> that's what they think, you know. That no way, uh, in, in a steel mill, of course, you, you have these three shifts. And uh, the morning shift usually begins at 8 and runs from 8 to 4. And on the 4 to 12 shift is called the what shift? That's called the swing shift. Or didn't you know that? Yeah, that's called the swing shift. And then the midnight to eight shift. It's called the midnight to eight shift. It's called the midnight shift. It's called the night hour. You know, they never call it things like that. It's just a, that's called the night shift. They call that the night shift in the mill. Now, I remember when I first got on the midnight to 8 a.m. shift. That's a fantastic scene. Most people in our whole lives are not used to working at night, you know. And uh, I was about uh, rough. Well, I was. I was 16. I just got my work permit, see. So uh, when you when you came to work there in the mill and they put you through the thing there and they gave you all the numbers, the big hat, you know, the steel, uh, the, the steel workers' hard hat and the safety goggles. You had to have safety goggles. No matter what job you worked in the mill, even if you worked in the office, it was a, it was a, yes, a trade. It was a requirement. You had to have them. You didn't have to wear them, but you had to have them. Uh, a safety goggles, a big glasses, see. And you also had to have safety shoes. Yes, with the steel toe inside. Now, why safety shoes? Well, if you've ever dropped 1,200 pounds of tin plate on your foot, you know damn well why you have safety shoes, friends. You do not wear your kids. Because, zap, no foot. <laughs> Just like that, see? So you wear these things. Well, do you know that you can get safety shoes that are dress models? Oh, yes, you can get elegant safety shoes. If you're, if you, if you work in an office, you're not going to sit around with the big cloud hopper safety shoes on, see? So the, uh, elegant safety shoes you can get if you, if you work, say, in the, in the, uh, the tin mill, uh, cost, uh, control office. But they think they're pretty elegant people, see, because, uh, they wear a tie to work. So naturally, when you're wearing your, your, uh, your $37 Sears Roebuck suit, you don't want to go down there wearing those cloud hoppers. So what you do, you get dress safety shoes, and they're kind of elegant. They look like, uh, what they look like, uh, if you can imagine, uh, King Kong has decided to go formal. Uh, <laughs> they're great big shoes, they, and they, they, they're elegant. They, they're, you know, you can get even the, the Scotch Brogue types, you know, with the, with the perforations. You can get the saddle shoe type safety shoes. Oh, yeah, indeed. So, uh, You'd go down to a place called the stores. Now, I hope I'm not boring you here with this life among the uh, hard hats, but you, there's a place in the mill called the stores. It was not like, uh, you know, the kind of a, wasn't a Tom McGann or anything like that, but what it was was a place where you could go when, it's right inside the mill, not outside, inside the mill. So the only guys that were in the mill could go there. And you'd go down there and uh, you could buy stuff uh, at the stores. Like uh, you could buy yourself a very elegant uh, asbestos fireproof bulletproof vest. That's kind of nice. You could even get yourself a Scotch plaid asbestos vest. <laughs> sure, you know you could get an English, early English style if you want, with pearl buttons. Because uh, after all, if you're sitting in, in an office that tends to blow up or get uh, catch on fire every five minutes when somebody drops an ingot on it, you want to be you know dressed for the occasion. So uh, you could go down and you get yourself. Uh, uh, yeah, and by the way, safety hubs. You, you, you're used to seeing hard hats, you know, the kind that the Con Ed guys wear? Well, see, the kind the mill types wear, and they don't look like that. You've seen mine back there. I still have mine here. Oh, yes, you never know when it's going to hit the fan around here. So I've got my hard hat back there, and it's got my name on it, the open hat that says on the side. You've seen it down there. 
Well, now that's a pretty elegant looking hat. It is. It's, it's, uh, it's, it doesn't look like uh, these cheapies that Con Ed wear, these little plastic chairs. This is a real elegant hat. So it looks like, well, it looks like a cross between uh, a German coal scuttle helmet and a GI helmet and a polo helmet. <laughs> you know what a polo helmet is? A little beak kind of front. It's very elegant. It's, it's pure white. It's a beautiful thing. Now, uh, it is. It looks like a piece of sculpture. You know, what, it, the, see, that was the uh, standard hard hat you wear when you're in the mill. And it's got a big web thing in the inside uh, uh, so that uh, you know, it grabs your skull. Now, if you were a, say, let's say, a junior executive and you worked, uh, let's say, at the tin mill uh, cost accounting office or something like that, you wouldn't want to go walking around with one of those uh, uh, proletarian white uh, scuttle helmets on, right? No. So do you know that you can get a, a, a safety helmet that's uh, in the shape of a very tasty uh, uh, pearl gray Homburg? Uh, yes. <laughs> Did you know that? You didn't know that? Absolutely. Now, you never see that in the film, but it's actually the truth. You can get a, you can get a, a safety helmet that's a Homburg shape, or you can get a, a pork pie type, or you can even get a Stetson type, but a big thing, you know. But it's it's a, it's made out of this uh, impact-proof, uh, uh, very hard uh, plastic. And uh, it'd be very handy to wear in certain bars I know here in town. You wear your Homburg hat, you know, some guy comes up behind you, bonk, you know, he says, what the hell, bonk, he gives you another shot. He could hit you seven times before you even though there's a guy giving you trouble, you know. Just a <laughs> so, uh, you know, these, uh, I don't know why I brought this up. This is W.O.R. New York, right? So uh, let's get a couple of these commercials here before we start the show here. We just have been warming up. This is uh, the monologue. Uh, uh, let's see, the monologue. You got a goodie in there for us, Al? Hit the button, please. You can buy a 1973 Plymouth Fury four-door sedan for the incredibly low price of just $1,795. Yes, you can buy a 1973 Plymouth Fury four-door sedan for just $1,795 at Pan American Auto Wholesalers. Pan American buys cars direct from government agencies and refurbishes them from top to bottom. Every engine and transmission is guaranteed for 12 months or 12,000 miles. Every car comes complete with factory air conditioning, power steering, power brakes, radio and vinyl roof, and complete financing is available. Every car must go, but it's first come, first serve. Come to Pan American Auto Wholesalers, 7619 Queens Boulevard in Elmhurst. If you need directions or want more information, call 426-1700. 426-1700. But you got to move fast. Remember, all 73 Plymouth Fury four-door sedans at one price, just $1,795. We're Pan American Auto Wholesalers. We're at 7619 Queens Boulevard in Elmhurst. Or you can call us anytime at 426-1700. 426-1700 for Pan American Auto Wholesalers. But move it. Come on, sing this is a great tune here. I'll take a tasty cake and have a lot of fun. Tasty cake is all the good things, all the good things wrapped up in one. It's a sing, uh, with the verb and with the believability. <laughs> Very believable. Say, gang, if you've ever yearned for the good old days, Tasty Cake has just brought them back for you, back in the days when you were fat and round, with 15-cent savings on Tasty Cake, cream-filled family packs. That's right. Now that good old Tasty Cake days are here, you could save 15 cents on Tasty Cake family packs of cream-filled buttercream cupcakes, cream-filled chocolate cupcakes, cream-filled coffee cakes, or cream-filled snow cups. Look for the 50-cent coupon, 15-cent coupon, in the food section of your local newspaper. And get all tasty caked up, buddy. Get big and fat like you used to be. Oh, that was exciting. 
says, says here, sing with verve and believability. Let's all take a tasty cake. Well, all right. Uh, we're not through with you yet, friend. Stand up. We're just beginning. Requested to leave the ship. Oh, sure. Please proceed to the gangway on the main deck. Oh, gee whiz. Oh, right. All right, go ahead and go. That's the way you're going to be. This year, you can make the possible dream come true. A 10 or 11-day Holland America cruise to the West Indies on the beautifully luxurious SS Veendam. The very finest in whining and dining, entertainment and service, all with no gratuities required. Plus five of the nicest islands in the whole balmy Caribbean. Rates from just $595, with no fuel surcharges or price increases after you book. Sailings April through November. So see your travel agent or call Holland America, 212-760-3880. That's 212-760-3880. The S.S. Dam is registered in the Netherlands Antilles. <laughs> Some brand buys at Grand Union this week, old buddy. A fantastic sale on genuine, fresh American lamb. Choose your favorite cut at reduced prices. <laughs> fresh ground beef, round chuck, old chuck. Any size package, 89 cents a pound. They got them all ground there and neatly it's packaged. It's a grand union. Grand union. Genuine fishman. All right, I'll award a brass figlegy with bronze oak leaf pod to you, buddy. If you can tell me who in the comic strips always referred to his, uh, the girl that he was always going with in the comic strips as as lambkins and little lammy. Lammy pie, he referred to her constantly as. Who was that? Yeah, but it sounds familiar, doesn't it? Now, that's the kind of trivia my head is chock-a-block full of. And it does me no damn bit of good, I'll just tell you. <laughs> See, my, uh, the, the true trivia is so trivial that nobody nobody cares, even the trivia fans. Now, that's true trivia. Nobody. Nobody. No way. All right, I'll ask you, who was B.Z. Binks? Okay, here's another one. What was the character in the comic strip known as Shadow? You ever heard of him? All right, what comic strip character was named Ignatz? Huh? No, he was not a cat. That is correct. He was a mouse. Ignatz the mouse. And what did, uh, did this cat that you referred to, there was a cat in that same strip, what did the cat continually say to Ignatz? What did he say to him at all times? He always said to him this. 
Now you see, that's the kind of stuff that makes a man's life go downhill rapidly. If you start thinking about that stuff long enough, buddy, you won't be listening to the news and WINS and sitting there worrying about all the strikes. You know that I know. You know that there's an LP company that's bringing out. You've seen all these nostalgic LPs. Everybody's you know, you know uh, the songs of Van Johnson. Wow. Uh, June Allison revisited seven unforgivable. I mean, uh, <laughs> seven uh, un uh, uh, just uh, unforgettable albums. You know, you've seen that, haven't you? The Legend of Sam Cooke and all this stuff, thousands and thousands of albums. But yes, well, I know one outfit that's, that's beginning to realize that now uh, people, there's a whole crowd of people who don't relate to music at all. So, you know, they, they don't have the same nostalgia over, say, King Cole or. Uh, they don't have the same nostalgia. You know, if they haven't brought out a collection, Eddie Fisher. You know, Eddie Fisher. Yeah, he said, Eddie Fisher is the most amazing singer that I've ever heard. He could sing 30, 40 songs and never once hit the key of any song, no matter what key it was written. It's just a fantastic. Now, <laughs> yeah, it was always sharp, no matter what it was, about three and a half tones sharp. And very amazing. Jer that's called the Jerry Vale syndrome. However, uh, oh, yeah. but... Uh, Nevertheless, uh, uh, there is a, <laughs> an outfit that is bringing out a great set of LPs. It's a nostalgic LP, and it's called Great Strikes of Our Time. And uh, you hear all these newscasters, you know, saying, Today the transit workers struck, and this is what Mike Quill had to say. Well, I'll tell you, John Lindley, his name was Lindley, I believe, he cannot push the transport workers around. And those were great strikes. And you can sit there, you know, if you're a real union man, you know, you can play all your favorite records over again. You know, Jimmy Hoffa taking a strike vote and all that. It's kind of great, isn't it? <laughs> well, that's a, more typical of our time than anything else, really. You know, major strikes. So uh, I think those, those LPs are really going to make it. Uh, how would you like to have a collection of newscasts, say, from uh, 1947? Would you like to hear some of them? Would you? Well, they sound just like the ones now. I mean, they're, they're very little difference. You know, wars busting out here and there. Uh, they're very little difference. You know, the, the, the illusion of the good old days is truly an illusion. It doesn't have much truth in reality. <laughs> if you were to suddenly be transported back to the days of Richard Lionhearted, you'd find nothing but trouble, buddy. Nothing but trouble. And on top of that, the plague. And uh, there's not many guys in your neighborhood got the plague recently. Depends on how you define the plague, though. Yeah, there was a girl in our class we used to call the plague. Everybody got it, but that was a problem. So, uh, you, you know, would you please hit the button there before you get further into trouble here, Al, please? Come on, let's go! <laughs> you can see why I'm on late at night. The Lieutenant, right? a brilliant new rock musical, says Emery Lewis. That's I wouldn't want it any other way. Oh, this is an unforgettable show. <laughs> The New York Times calls the lieutenant a fiercely stimulating musical that catches fiercely fire immediately. Well, well, that's the worst kind of stimulation. Ah, This is an original sound. Long Island Press says if you never see another play, you must see the lieutenant. God, what's happening to Long Island? Long Island Press. No, no. 
No, no, we can't hit him with another one after that. Gee, that sounds like original music. That sounds just like the kind my brother Randy plays on his harmonica when he's making it up. Join the army. I say the army. I can write those songs. No, I say join the army now. Ho, ho, ho. It'll never end. But uh, it never will. That's what's great about it. You want to hear about my, my uh, first night as working as a night worker? Well, I started with that, didn't I? Hey, for those of you that are out there working nights, I'll have to lay some more on you here. Uh, and none of this is news to you, right? You know, it took a university though, to come and tell you. That's what's great about being involved in the academic world. You can get these grants to study the obvious. You know, two hundred thousand dollar grant to uh, study uh, to study the effect of uh, prunes on the diet. <laughs> you know. <laughs> All right. Yeah, you know, always doing stuff like that. But uh, here, here, listen to this one. It says, uh, night shift workers build their own isolated society. Well, that's very true. And are inclined to share confidences like passengers on a cruise ship. Well, that depends on the cruise, friend. It says they are much more, quote, honest and open with each other. That's that's a that was well I I would suspect that that's true but let me tell you this they they come down right here at the bottom they really say something true it says uh, status distinctions are carefully maintained among night workers the study said quote they have to interact and receive human warmth and definition from each other she said Herculean efforts were made to keep conflicts smoothed over that's true oh yeah listen. Uh, and finally, it says, outcasts usually left night work. Not always, friends. <laughs> oh, let me tell you. I want to tell you about, about night work now, how I, how I learned about night work at a tender age. Right? I was 16. See, well, what happens when you get a job in the middle? The first thing they do, they give you the physical exam. You know, they, they, they run you through that whole thing. They uh, tap your head and listen to your chest and stuff and... And uh, if you if you have the right kind of physique, you're automatically qualified for the worst kind of job. Uh, if if you come in there and you're going, <laughs> you know, you're hacking away a little bit, but you got a friend who's a superintendent or something, you'll get a good job, which means you'll be in a nice office and you know, and you have the ice cold water by you and so forth. Uh, by the way, that's one thing in the mill I must say. Uh, at all times, one of the most uh, sought after things of all was ice cold water. Yes. You take water for granted in your life, don't you? Well, when you're in a steel mill, you don't take water for granted because you sweat it out so damn fast. And it, it, it really, it really it, water becomes a very important deal with you. Now, immediately upon getting your job and getting going through all the paperwork and stuff, you're sent down to the stores. Now, you get you arrive down at the stores, and it's this great big building, and very official. It's nothing at all like a store. They just call it stores, like the ship stores in the Navy. It's got all kinds of uh, iron staircases, uh, iron ladders, and uh, it's got the big iron gates and stuff. And, uh, you know, it's a lot of valuable stuff in there. So you come right up into the stores there, and you have your slip, see, the stuff that you're entitled to buy. This goes against your salary. You don't get this free. So you give them this thing, see. Guy says, uh, and he's sitting there in his little cubby hole, and he looks at the, sh at the sheet. 
He says, uh, another one here, uh, Stan. Uh, give me about what size hat do you wear, buddy? And you say, oh, I don't know, you know. But I don't know what size hat. What size hat do you wear? I never wear a hat, you know. So I says, hey, you know, just an ordinary hat, I guess. I don't know. So uh, send uh, looks again at your knob, you know. So uh, send a uh, seven a quarter. Uh, send a seven a quarter uh, day labor out, please. And so the next thing you know, they bring you this white helmet. This is your hat. You know, this is going to remain with you. So you don't realize this little thing is going to sit on the top of your head now for the next hundred years. And you get this hat, nice and white, comes in a plastic bag. It's yours. You know, it's a professional. He writes it down. You sign the thing. Okay, there's half your salary for next month right there. All right. Then he says, all right, go on to the next room there. Get, take your shoes off, buddy. I'll try to fit your shoes there. So you go in the next room and you sit down on an iron chair. And a guy comes out, and he takes your measurement of your foot, you know, just like a regular shoe store, except there's no, you know, there's no cases around there. There's no mod models in there. Like, the guy goes in the back, and he comes back out with his pair of safety shoes. Now, these are fireproof, uh, acid-proof, uh, poison-gas-proof, snake-proof, uh, bullet-proof. I mean, these are real shoes, buddy. They were about, uh, they, they'll wear a good 19 years under normal circumstances. And they weigh about 19 pounds each, see? So, yeah, they, they strap these shoes on. You. <laughs> They're ready for disaster. Then he says, all right, he says, bring out the, hey, uh, this guy's uh, about a size 40 regular. And uh, they bring out this uh, fireproof jacket. It's a jacket, you know, it's about, uh, I'll tell you, if, if, wait, till, wait till the uh, hip clothing type kids down on the in the village discover uh, fireproof uh, steel mill jackets. That that really is going to knock them. That's going to knock them loose right off the out of the tree because they're beautiful. First of all, they're made out of asbestos impregnated. Uh, well, it's denim, really. It's an asbestos impregnated denim, but it doesn't burn theoretically unless you do what uh, some guys do, like fall in the open heart. Forget it. Everything burns. You know. So you get you, you get this jacket thing. And on the back, he stencils it. See, he takes a big stencil. That's what you guys would dig, you know. Something that says you. On the back, you know, they put your names. He stencils it on. And then he, he stencils what department you're assigned to. Like OH. You know. Uh, boy, that looks great, you know. BF. Blast furnace. See. Uh, T. A big T. See, says a tin mill. See. RM. What do, you, what do you think RM stands for? You wouldn't know. That's the rail mill. Uh, his, or then, then he has a great big 10 inches just 10 inches what do you think that stands for that's the 10 inch merchant mill uh, yeah or big PM with, with white paint that glows this is all glow paint see because you, you they, it's a very safety conscious place there see so they put this glow paint on it it's a big white PM what does that stand for plate mill pretty obvious see so uh uh, you know, it's not nothing subtle there in the mill. They come right out. So uh, you put the jacket on. Now you're really feeling great. So you put the jacket on. You put the hat on. You put the shoes on. And the guy says, uh, he says, uh, let's see. He says, you need safety glasses. And all the while, every time they hand you something, you sign. See? So uh, you don't know. You know, when you're a kid, you just sign your name. You don't realize that you have signed away now three months of salary already. The whole summer's gone. <laughs> you know, and stuff in your in your right mind you never want to buy. So I, I I'm sitting there. He says, "Oh, bring uh, okay." He says, "Bring up uh, open heart glasses." Well, now the open heart glasses aren't the same as the other glasses. The open heart glasses are you know round safety glasses. Uh, 
they're not like the kind you see in the uh, the uh, Black and Decker ads on TV. Those are little fun and games glasses that guys who make end tables at home use. These are real safety glasses, man. They weigh about 30 pounds. They clamp on you. Oh, yeah. They're fireproof, too. They're also heatproof. And they're also roughly the color of uh, uh, a dark stygian blue. It's a blue that you can almost... You can, it's almost impenetrable. You can't see that. This is a, to enable you to look at the the uh, the flame without your eyeballs blowing out the back of your head, see, <laughs> or searing away like a couple of scallops on the griddle. So you these you put these things on. They clamp on the top of your hat, and he says, "Okay, uh, bring out a pair of uh, medium gloves." So you get these these safety gloves. Now you've never seen safety gloves, have you? Well, they've got steel. The kind of little steel uh, rods impregnated into the palm. So if you grab something that is very, very sharp, they're not going to cut through. You got it? And, and if you're around sheet metal, man, you just get near that. It'll cut your leg off. So, uh, yeah, this is really sharp stuff. So uh, you got the gloves now. You're all ready to go. And you go waddling out into the, into the cold, and you're ready to go to work. <laughs> yeah, it's really, at first you feel kind of funny, and everything is stiff, and... You know, you got this new suit on, you smell all this stuff. And, and uh, so I go down to the I go to the open heart. Now, I'm going to be on the open heart. The first job I had there that night was the open heart. And I was uh, assigned to an open heart uh, labor gang as uh, ostensibly, theoretically, an apprentice. That's how you can get away with working at 16. Cent. Well, uh, you know, apprentice, that was just a name. So all, uh, there's about 45 guys sitting in this bus in the dark and it's it's about 9 o'clock 10 o'clock at night when I first came down I see I, I'm reporting for work remember so it's about 9 10 o'clock and I've been waiting around for the bus now the bus is ready to go it's quarter to 12 I'm on the midnight shift and already I'm dead tired I mean you know you're not used to staying up to midnight uh, on a Wednesday uh, right for starters when you're 16 anyway so I get in the bus it's a long flat steel bus steel seats nothing fancy it's a bus that takes you down into the down into what they call the open heart floor so we go rolling down alongside this open it's absolutely black and these guys are, they all know each other they've been working with each other for about 40 years you know here you are you're sitting down at the end me and a couple of other new guys and uh, there's all kinds of guys named Stosh uh, you know they all have names like Stosh and uh, uh, Alex and uh, you know great names like uh, yeah they have some Bolas and Cashmere was a big name among the crowd, you know. Hey, Cashmere! Hey, Cashmere! You you bring the salt tonight, you honey? Huh? You bring the salt, huh? Bring your own salt! You know, they, they had all, all little in-jokes they've been telling each other for years. Apparently, Cash never brought the salt, so he was always bumming salt. And so we go taking off down, and we pull up by the outside of the open hearth floor, and uh, we go streaming out, and it is a night, and there's a couple of foremen there. See, they, they're all friends. They all know each other, see. So immediately, the kind of the uh, the, the, the leading uh, laborer of the crowd, you know, somebody like Stosh or Cashmere, you know, he always say, he says, "Hey, uh, hey, Howard, what are you out tonight, huh?" And uh, Howard says, "Ah, what do you mean? Well, yeah, you know, when you're out of usual." He says, "Ah, yeah, you know." So we go charging down the floor. See, we all run, chum, 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 and we're on the we're on the open house charging cars. Now, for those of you who don't know what the open house is, is this boring you? It's a fascinating story, see, because most people don't know about the steel mill. See, the open-heart charging cars. Now, when you see pictures in the uh, 
you'll see a movie of, of the open hearth. Well, the open hearth literally is that. It's a big furnace. It's an oven. It's a heart. And uh, this is uh, the, the, it's, it performs a certain function. See, it, it, it cooks up all his ore and, uh, in, a, in a great big cauldron, in effect, in an oven. And uh, various things are added to this thing, this, this boiling cauldron of hell. And the charging car moves on a rail along these ovens. There's about 35 of them in a row. This, uh, they may have 36 uh, open hives going at a time. And these charging cars are, are like, uh, well, like a little metal uh, series of tr cars, uh, train cars, with a great big arm, a great big iron arm that just takes this whole car. It's, it's a, what, it, what it looks like is a great big pot, a metal pot, and it, it's filled with uh, manganese, or maybe filled with silica, or whatever it is you're going to put in this thing. And it just goes, and the door opens. You see this flame. Oh, it's burning like hell. This thing goes right in there, and then it turns over. This stuff goes in, and then it pulls out. That's how it charges this, uh, this furnace. Well, our job was to put the stuff in these cars, right, which are automated. These cars go down, and they stop at the right furnaces, and they put the right stuff in the right cars now. Yeah. So number five car, let's say, was was uh, silicon. So we had, we these things are way down at the end. We have got a great big pile of silicon. So we shovel like crazy. See, and these things are moving. You know, they they don't they don't wait for you. It's all automated. <laughs> We're shoveling silicon. In. So the next thing you know, you're shoveling the manganese and you're shoveling in the carbon or whatever it is you're shoveling. So the big piles. It's like what you're doing is like cooking. See. <laughs> And, and, and all the while we're shoveling like crazy, see, and it's about 5,000, maybe 12,000 degrees where we are. You got to understand, it's very, very hot at this place. Because you got 36 giant ovens that are all going at maybe 3,500 degrees, uh, intense heat, and uh, the light. And so we follow, we run down, we're running down, the, and I, at this point, I don't know what the hell we're doing. See, at that point where Stash says, all right, come on, you two guys, let's go. So we're running down along the rails there, and one of the, one of the cars has gotten hung up. See, we're going to run down, we get these hammers, see, we're going to hit the, hit the switch or something, make the car go again. So we're running like, hell. he said, put your glasses out, you guys. So we put the glasses out, we run down, there's dust flying out. We get down at the end, and now, remember, it's about 4 o'clock in the morning, and I am getting bombed out of my skull with tired. Let's see. So we get down there, we hit this thing about 17 times, and the car starts going, the flame again, and we run back, and we start shoveling. Well, now, these guys, if you think that labor is easy, friend, um, uh, not only is it physically rough in some areas, but uh, if you think that labor doesn't work, in other words, it goes off a lot, you've got another thing coming. These guys are on tonnage, which means, you see, that the, that the, the more steel, more more output the mill turns on a trick, uh, the uh, uh, the more tonnage you get. In other words, it's like a commission, see? So if you start goofing off, man, uh, Stash and Cashmere ain't going to like this. You know, they just bought this new house out in South Chicago, and they want to pay for that house, and they want to go bowling, you know, and they want to do all the rest of it. And if you start uh, goofing off and hanging around back in a water cooler, you're in trouble. So every uh, every half hour, because I'm getting thirsty. Oh, uh, I'm really thirsty, see, and uh, it's hot, and I'm wearing my my uh, my jackets, making me sweat. My new asbestos jackets. Now about five o'clock in the morning, I've been shoveling like crazy since midnight, and uh, I'm really getting touched, sweating inside. And I'm, uh, the irony of it all is, on one side of you, you're hot; the other side, you're cold. That's the way of the mill, see. So you learn after years to, to keep yourself turning like on a spit. <laughs> 
so you're always medium well done instead of overcooked on one side and the raw on the other. See, so <laughs> yeah, that's true. So I finally says, "I gotta get a drink." And the guy says, "Okay." And so everybody's shoveling like crazy again. He says, the water cooler's down there. He says, uh, it's past the second door, right past the clock. So I run like crazy down to the water cooler. And this place is dark. I remember it's, it's, uh, it's uh, just the flames are going. There's a few lights way up at the top. And once in a while, an overhead crane. It was a madhouse at first, you see. I wasn't aware that, uh, you know, there is a the definite order there. But it just seemed like hell. It was like Dante's Inferno. And uh, once in a while, this crane would go by. And when a crane goes by, it goes, fantastic sound, because they don't want you to get killed. You know, this crane is carrying 60 tons of a giant piece of equipment goes roaring past. And if this thing gets you on the back of the head, you've bought the farm. So uh, you got to keep listening for these things. And, and, oh, yeah, they just go hell-bent for election right down the middle, you know. You've got to get out of the way of it. 60 tons does not move uh, agilely, let's put it this way. You just get out. So I'm running, and the cranes are going, and the flame is flying. And, uh, I, you know, you hear this giant roar. You can't hear anything after a while. I get down to the water cooler, and here's the water cooler sitting there. It's an ordinary-looking water cooler. It says Westinghouse or something inside of it. <laughs> and it's going, go, 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 go. You know, I figure it's water. So I, I turn the water cooler on. I go, <laughs> I take a, about five giant gulps of this thing and I spit it all out. Oh, what the hell is this stuff? Little did I realize it was steel mill water. It was my first taste of steel mill water, which is a special kind of water. We will tell you about steel mill water in just a moment, friends, but first... We'd like to offer you a rebate of $100, $150, even $200, and you don't even have to buy a car to get it. Because now, in a bow to today's economy, Saramar Beach Hotel on the picturesque north shore of Puerto Rico will give you a rebate on a luxurious resort vacation. Stay with us a minimum of six nights between March 1st and March 31st, modified American plan, or take one of Saramar's regular six-night packages, and we'll rebate $100 on your total single or double occupancy room bill at checkout, or $150 for triple occupancy, or $200 quadruple occupancy. You can apply the rebate to rooms, meals, green fees on Saramar's two golf courses, tennis, anything. It's a great way to snap out of winter and snap up a bargain. For details of Saramar's March rebate plan or for reservations, see your travel agent or in New York, call 586-4459. 586-4459. Well, you know, I'll tell you, I, I, I have to look back on that job as one of the great educational experiences. You know what I'd like to say? I'd like to say that uh, uh, they ought to require, you know, certain colleges, certain colleges do. They require... Uh, kids to work out in, in you know different places uh, as part of the curriculum, and uh, you really learn about life. And I had this you know this this, this first night here it is, and I'm, I can't I can't believe that guys could work like this all night long. You know, and my my eyes are hurting because I'm practically out of my skull with no sleep. And I take that great big suck of that steel mill water, just very really shot. Whew! And the, the guy behind me is waiting to drink. He says, what's the matter? And I says, what is this water? He says, what's the matter, kid? You just start? And I said, yeah. He says, that's, uh, he says, that's, that's pretty open heart. And I said, what is it? It's got salt in it. Very important. If you don't have salt in your water, ooh, 
<laughs> so this stuff is just, it's like drinking brine. It's salt water. It's got a heavy salt waste in it. You know, curiously enough, you get so that you love it after a while because your body sweats out all the salt. It, it gets to taste great. And plain water has a certain flatness to it. So finally, after it seemed like eight, nine, maybe ten years, it's eight o'clock in the morning. And the, the, the crowd runs back, gets in the bus, and they all come these guys are as fresh as a daisy. One of them says, hey, Cashmere, you're going to bring this salt tomorrow night, huh? <laughs> you know, we go back to the gate, we punch out, and staggering down the street. Wow. And you know, for the first time in my life, I truly felt like I was an alien among my fellow human beings. All the rest of them are going to work. I've come from work that they would never conceivably understand. Oh. And you know, once in a while I start griping around here in the studios or when I'm going to do a show at some Carnegie Hall or someplace, and I think, oh, friend, you could be drinking up salt water and wearing a big hat. Oh. 